Please remain standing for our scripture lesson, continuing the series in 1 John chapter 3, second half of verse 8 through 10. It starts with an interesting statement here. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. It's interesting. There must be a gravitational pull to this side of the church building today. But I will seek to address all of you wherever you are seated on this Lord's Day. As we're together still in 1 John chapter 3, it's been a great series so far. I think we're in about the 16th installment, so we're moving along quite well. But before we look at this very intriguing text, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is fed to us in the church on the Lord's Day through the preached word, through our ears, our hearts, but also through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper through our mouths. Thank you that you take care to feed us well and to cause us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and be everything you want us to be. And this we pray that you will grant us a supernatural hearing of your word today, that we might love you more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all are who we are because of who our Father is. In other words, all of us have within us, as per verse 9 of our scripture lesson today, the seed of our Father. It's mentioned by John there in that excellent verse. Ultimately, there are but two spiritual fathers in the universe of human beings, God and Satan. When God first created the human race in the Garden of Eden, way back at the beginning of creation, there was no sign anywhere of sin or Satan in the human nature whatsoever. He had absolutely no part of it at all. But upon the fall of our first federal human head, Adam, into sin, all of us were also thrust into that same original sin, so we're conceived in rebellion against God, at enmity with him, hating him, wanting nothing at all to do with him. Save for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and his providential sovereign election and atonement and regeneration and justification of us, we would be lost forever and ever. And God does that for his elect church. So if that is who you are today, know that your spiritual father is a good one and a glorious one and a wonderful one. With Adam, we all collectively seated ourselves in our glorious inheritance as those who were to have dominion over the earth to Satan, the old wily snake. And that's why he shows up even here in chapter 3 of First John as one of the fathers of humankind, but not a legitimate one to be sure. But now in the fullness of the new covenant, fully and finally realized in the person of the God-man Jesus Christ our Lord, God reclaims his own children, his elect people, through a wonderful means of grace. 
whereby he calls us through the gospel to himself as we hear these words of gospel preaching. He feeds us Jesus, and we feast on him in the sacrament as well. We are made brand new creatures in Christ, as per 2 Corinthians 5.17, and we are made his church, his bride, his people, the body of Christ. Therefore, with all this wonderful glory before us on this resurrection day, Let us, by God's grace, make it our goal to possess and exhibit the nature of Christ. We're looking at spiritual natures today. We're going to be looking at 1 John 3, 8b through 10. If you're new here and you want to use the outline, this is where we begin. The title of the sermon is Spiritual Natures, and the doctrine, because all verses have it, teaching is... Christ's coming clearly delineated the spiritual natures of all human beings. When Jesus, quote, destroyed the works of the devil, as per verse 8b, as Elder Craig read it a few moments ago, he also did away with the old enmities between Jews and Gentiles that had existed in the old covenant age and church. Now that's gone. It's all broken down. But as he broke down those walls, the Lord also established very solid partitions between his elect church, which would be made up of sinner saints that would gather together, and we would be all growing at various levels, and everyone else in the world. God wants that delineation to occur. Now, in the process of this fallen world, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the true and the false, the sincere and the hypocrite. All of these can be together for a while. But in God's time, in a faithful church, that all gets shaken out. Everything comes to a fullness. The chaff is gone, the wheat is left. And so we definitely want to be among the wheat today, especially as we think about Thanksgiving and harvest season and God gathering his people to himself. Indeed, it is very good for us to know and experience that God, Christ's coming clearly delineated the spiritual natures of all human beings. First, Jesus did this by crushing Satan's head. Again, the importance of this historical redemptive event cannot be overemphasized. That's why the New Covenant Sabbath day was changed from the old seventh day to the new first day, the Sunday, the day of the resurrection was on that day first that Jesus crushed Satan's head by coming forth from the tomb as the risen God-man, forever to reign in the body, just like we will have bodies that have risen in our second resurrections as well. Now, this is the means by which Christ crushed or destroyed the works of the devil. The old devil did trick our federal head in the Garden of Eden, but God, in Christ Jesus, restores us in the if you will, garden tomb near Jerusalem where Jesus crumpled the old snake, the old dragon's head. And as we talked about last week, he is in his death throes today thrashing about. He's essentially dead, just trying to do as much damage as he can before he finally expires. But he is dead. He's been crushed. So we, the regenerate saints of the true church, are in the garden tomb area with Jesus. We have been risen with him to the Father's right hand. We've been given every good and perfect gift in Jesus Christ, and he has bequeathed upon us his kingdom, his inheritance. In Jesus, we have everything we could ever need or want. 
as liberated children, clean and forgiven all our sins. And for this most magnificent grace and blessing, let us always give God our Father thanks and praise through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did this by crushing Satan's head and thereby confirming through his resurrection his role as the federal head of his church. So now Jesus Christ becomes the federal head of all the redeemed elect churchmen in the world. Those who are elect but then also are in time and space redeemed, placed into the church, now have a new federal head. For us, Adam is no longer our federal head, but Jesus Christ is. And Christ loves this status as the federal head of his own church. He values it more than the fact that he is the undisputed king and sovereign and ruler over all creation, the world, and everything else, not just the church. He sits in heaven today completely in control of everything. Everything that occurs in the world this week or last week or any other time in history has been totally under the absolute, complete, sovereign control of this glorious, risen Lord Jesus Christ with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This theological discussion we're having right here relates to today's text that Elder Craig read, and we're going to exegete in a little while, because without these glorious truths being in place, there would be no means by which God would be able to separate out, if you will, the children of God from the children of the devil, which is mentioned in this text. And it's a very important fact. God allows some of the angst and the anguish and the sin and the disgrace and the trouble and the tribulation and the trial and the distress of a fallen world to remain while we are here so as to cause him to use it for us, even as per the text that Craig read in the call to worship, glorying with him and suffering with him, that we might become more conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans 8.29. And that's a beautiful thing. Lots of your troubles and distresses, hardships and trials, all those things that really put you to the test are there for a good reason. And they're there for our betterment to make us more and more like Christ. The same may be said of evil people in the world, including the heretics that John talks about so much in the book of 1 John, those ascetic Gnostics and others, who were seeking to deceive and mislead the first century Christians to whom he wrote, even they are included in this. Those who would seek to confuse and disrupt the harmony of the faithful church and her members, those people exist to try us, to test us, to be the ones that by God's grace we bring down into defeat, all the while evangelizing them, loving them, and praying for them. It's sort of an odd mixture of conquering and yet loving at the same time. But bringing down every argument against the the gospel, every argument against Christ and his church must be destroyed, especially in the context of the church. We can leave no room for it at all. It's just too dangerous. And therefore, the Lord gets his way. To put it in Augustine's language, he gets the city of God, And he gets the city of man. And that's the way he wanted it to be. And that's what we live in today. Let's do the exegesis of 1 John 3, 8b through 10 and consider together 
how spiritual natures get sorted out in the new covenant. Now we're going to investigate just how the Lord God, the gracious Lord, shakes out the otherwise disordered and befuddled world and puts Christ's people into his church and intentionally keeps everyone else ultimately out. In the meantime, there is mixing and matching, but in the end, everyone settles into their rightful places. How spiritual natures get sorted out in the new covenant. First through Christ's demolition, D-E-M-O-L-I-T-I-O-N, demolition of the false universality, verse 8b. In other words, the totality of the false calamity gets reversed in the lives of the regenerate and elect church. Let's look at that verse 8b again. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Boy, we're going to look at that verse again from a slightly different angle. If you were here last week, you know that that was part of our scripture lesson for last Sunday, and now we picked it up again, just because it's so key and so critical. One of the most pernicious works of the devil was to render the state of humankind, this glorious creation, the highest of God's creation, Maybe not in the original creation with the, the angels, but once Jesus Christ was incarnate, it was clear that the humankind was the highest of God's creation. And Satan, in his work, is always seeking to render us a state of monolithic, dead wasteland. Nothing but deadness. Everybody flattened down. Lowest common denominator. Take all the dignity, all the honor, all the wonder of humankind out. Animals have more sense. And we're not even going to criticize animals by saying we become like them. Because they have their place. They're doing it right. But Satan would diminish us so much, push us so low, that we become lower than the dirt, the rocks, the trees. We become lower than the devils, if you will. That's his work in us. But Jesus came here to change all that. He came to destroy the works of the devil and to reestablish beauty and order in the human race. Not in every single person, but even through the elect church that would affect all people and lift all people up to higher greatness to who they can be, who they may be, the wonder and glory of humankind, created in the image of God and particularly recreated in the image of Christ. He ramps up these virtues to higher levels than they could have ever been in in Adam's pre-fallen condition. The righteousness we now have in Jesus is greater than he had in his own righteousness before he fell. We are given the righteousness, the life of Christ himself, the mind of Christ. We have been blessed beyond any other creation possible. There is nothing God could do greater than to give us his son, Jesus. And he has. Satan's work in the world, even today, is to seek to once again reduce everybody to this low place. He uses all kinds of things that otherwise might seem innocent, like inclusion or diversity, to render everybody fools and slaves to him. Slavish, foolish, miserable creatures. Can't think, can't act, can't do anything, can't conceive of anything beyond what they're told. 
That's the slave driver. That's the taskmaster. That's the demon god that most people want to worship. They don't worship him against their will. They want to worship him. That's how fallen this state of rebellion in Adam truly is. But Jesus continues constantly to wreck this program all the time, especially from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. When sermons like these are preached from faithful pulpits all around the world, Satan's head takes another crushing blow, another stab to the spine, and he writhes again in anguish and distress, kicking in his blood and in his death throes. Christ exalts a part of the human race, taking members from every race and tribe and place and nation and people group and ethnicity and causing them, some members of every single possible human grouping, to be his church, his chosen ones, to shine in the cosmos for the glory of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How spiritual natures get sorted out in the New Covenant through Christ's demolition of the false universality and through radical transformation of redeemed hearts, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, this verse 9 is very instructive and very helpful, and I want to pastorally uh, help you with it and, and show you really what we need to take from it. The people being described here in verse 9 are dramatically transformed human beings. They really are. They are new creatures. Who else is born of God? Who else does not make a practice of sinning? And who else has God's seed abiding in him or her? Answer, no one else. Only those who are born of God through Jesus Christ have those blessings. Now, does this mean that the true saints of the militant church never sin anymore? And that we have achieved perfect sanctification in this life? Is that what John's teaching in verse 9? Of course not. It would contradict what he said earlier, where he affirmed that we're all sinners and we continue to sin. We need to confess our sins. That's why we confessed our sins earlier and received absolution. We come to church because we need to be here. We want to be here, but we need to be here. We need to hear the affirming affirmation that our sins are forgiven, the loving words of our Heavenly Father upon us because of Christ's atoning work. It doesn't mean we don't sin, and it doesn't mean we have perfect sanctification, but it does mean that we have a new nature, that our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, and it's been legally imputed to us by God so that we are now in a standing before God that's absolutely pure and perfect and holy and righteous and good and justified, just as his own natural son is. That's how glorious this gospel is truly is. How spiritual natures get sorted out. Radical demo, Christ demolition, radical transformation, and finally, through objective covenant and love criteria, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. So someone might well say, well, I want more proof of this regeneracy of which you speak. I I don't want it just to be theoretical. I want to see proof. Well, John talks about proof here. He even uses the word evident here in this verse 10. Here is the proof, and it's in two phases. The first is general. The second is more specific. The initial test that distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil is the practicing of, quote, righteousness. See that? Righteousness. Not the world's righteousness. Okay? Not the politically correct righteousness of the world that it foists on all people, including real Christians, but true righteousness. And this righteousness, as we noted from last Sunday's sermon, can only be practiced in the context of the faithful church. Because only there is Jesus Christ fed to his people. Only there is the commitment that must be had. The one who practices righteousness does that by being perfect in the covenant, even though we are sinners in every other way. We can still be faithfully perfect in the covenant, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, sermon to sermon, sacrament to sacrament, worship service to worship service, because this is where practicing righteousness has to start. It doesn't start in the world. It doesn't start in the neighborhood. It doesn't even start in the home. It doesn't even start in the heart. It starts in the church, because there we are fed the person of Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the wine of life, and the joy of life. So the first big general distinguishing mark of a new creature in Christ is practicing righteousness, i.e. faithful in the covenant. Now, what will that mean? If we're faithful in the covenant and we can keep hearing gospel sermons without running away, that means that we're also going to be faithful in the community and in the culture too. We're going to take this message there and we're going to live it and share it and enjoy it. The second one is much related to the first. That is loving one's brother or sister in the church. John puts it a little bit negatively at the end of verse 10, saying, quote, the one who does not love his brother. And then he describes that person as a, quote, child of the devil, unquote. Now you might say, isn't that a little strong language from the apostle of love, John? They would call someone a child of the devil because they refuse to love their brother or sister in the church. Well, that's the acid test. Love for God, love for neighbor. But the neighbor, first neighbor, is the fellow churchman. That's how important it is that we continue to love each other in the church and to do it from sincerity and humility, recognizing how vulnerable we are and how easily we can be deceived and misled into thinking that we're more righteous than thou, or more holier than thou, and then looking down upon someone that we must never do that. The smallest members of the church are as valuable, if not more, than anyone else. It is altogether one great body. The objective criteria of church covenant life makes this discernment between the children of God and the children of the devils. John says in verse 10, evident, and supernatural and holy love or lack thereof seals the point. So let's do some more application. We like to do that here following the Puritan model of preaching.
doctrine, exegesis or explanation, and application. So we want to bring this even closer to home and more use for us. And consider why God cares so much about his church's grasp of spiritual natures. Now, in this application section, we're going to return to John's broader theme of heresy and heretics, which spurred this discussion of the natures of the family of God and the clan of Satan in the first place, and will also follow it as well. I mean, you look at this book of 1 John. Uh, commentators have struggled with it because it's very hard to outline this book. But he does seem to have this common theme of heresy and the correction thereof in a pastoral way. So let us never lose sight of the reason why God cares so much about his church's grasp of spiritual natures. First, because heresy is a lethal malady. Lately, I've been studying Ambrose and Augustine, who were contemporaries, and Ambrose baptized Augustine in Milan in 387 uh, A.D. In the church's 4th century struggle against heresies and heretics, and it's a very interesting struggle, and I'm not saying everybody did it all perfectly well. It's easy for us to throw rocks when we didn't live in those ages. But in that struggle, Ambrose and Augustine shine as great heroes of the church. I didn't know this about Ambrose, but he was an amazingly courageous man. Uh, He was the bishop in Milan, and he was highly esteemed there. Augustine got a lot of help from him in his early days. And at one time in Milan, the pagan people in Milan, remembering the Roman Empire was basically made up of the official religion of the Catholic Church, and we would say that that was very positive back then. We'd all be part of it. Then you had the Donatist Church that started in the early 4th century that thought it was the pure church. And then you had just the pagans that were left over from the Roman Empire that used to worship those gods and things, or at least they pretended to. I don't think anybody took them too seriously. So you had the situation where one time in Milan, the pagans decided they liked Ambrose's church building, and they wanted to just take it away from him. So Ambrose gets his congregation together, goes into the church building, stands there, and literally stared the pagans down, just stared them down. They said, uncle, we're out of here, you win, we're we're gone. They just left. Ambrose, the incredibly courageous pastor. And then take the example of Augustine, who was far more brilliant than Ambrose, a much more esteemed theologian. He became a fearsome foe to the church's 4th and 5th century heretics, particularly the Manichaeans, of which he had been for a number of years, the Donatists, and the Pelagians, which he had also dabbled in at one time. So effective was Augustine in his confrontation, hopefully loving as much as could be, with the heretics, that often when they were having a series of debates with him from one day or another, they would just quit after a day or two. They say, Uncle, that's it. I'm out of here. It's not going to work. You can't take this guy on. Other times they simply wouldn't even attempt it. And you can't really blame them. 
But these 4th and 5th century Christian church leaders understood, like we should, the importance of fighting heresy. Heresy absolutely is a lethal, deadly malady, and it cannot be brought in. That's one of the reasons your pastor is so passionate about heresies. I do not like heresies, and I do not like heretics. And if they seek to make their way into the congregation that I'm pastoring, they are going to feel my wrath, and rightly so. And worse than that, the wrath of God, if there isn't some repentance. So there is danger to the elect when heresy is afoot. Now, granted, we just read in the Westminster Confession of Faith that the elect can never lose their justification. That's true. But we don't want to put the elect in danger. And even worse than that, there is the glory of God that must be maintained at all points in Jesus Christ. So, because heresy is a lethal malady and union with Christ is its only preventative and remedy. The gospel, the good news, is for everybody, all people, heretics included, are sincerely invited to embrace Jesus' life himself by humble faith. Those who do are delivered from hell, Satan, death, damnation, condemnation, and heresy. Those who don't are subject to all those things which are really the rightful domain of Satan and his fallen demons. Union with Christ is the magnificent result of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, whereby he supernaturally applies the merits of Christ to the hearts of dead, lost, rebellious sinners who are his elect people in time and space, and the atoning merits of Christ then become ours, and we are cleansed and free. The offer of the gospel is a genuine one. The disease with which we are all conceived is a fallen and rebellious will, The will is the problem. That's the issue. The will simply does not want the truth of Jesus or the gospel and resists it. And always would, every time, if it wasn't for the grace of God. That's how thankful we should be that he does elect and predestine and save his people. Otherwise, we would all be lost in death and sin. The twisted will has a continued hatred for God and uh, insurrection against him. Another consequence of a fallen, unrepentant will is its demonic zeal to continue to maintain its heresies and false beliefs against all opposition, because these are gods. These are doctrines of demons. These are things that people commit themselves and love and are bound to and are willing to die for and go to hell forever for and be happy about it. That's how horrible the twisted will is. The force of the power of spiritual natures. You see that? This text is about spiritual natures. The child of God, the child of the devil, the nature within. Do you wish to be in Christ today? You may be. But you must forsake all your own righteousness, all your pride, your stubbornness, your rebellion, your resistance, your love for demons and doctrines of demons. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you do it in earnestness and in so doing you believe that the Redeemer's blood alone plus nothing cleanses away all your iniquities. It's a beautiful gospel. Beloved, 
Spiritual natures separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the redeemed from the damned. Let us be found in the family of God today, and many of us eat at this table, our faith in Jesus with resulting love for the triune deity. Spiritual natures, let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that we have the nature of Christ by your grace, that you have put your seed of your Holy Spirit in us. It had nothing to do with us, Lord. If it was our will being done, we would gladly choose hell, Satan, the world, and damnation, and all kinds of heresies. But you had a better plan for us, a much greater and glorious one, and we thank you that you've lifted us up to the highest heights in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.